In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Jesus, Word of God, reveal more of yourself to us through your presence in the Bible. Led by the Holy Spirit, guide our time of reflection. May it increase our desire for you in the Scripture and in the sacrament. Amen. We open up this weekend with the Lord God giving a clear command to Abram. Go, go forth from the land of your kinsfolk and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. We might think of this invitation to Abram as something like Bilbo Baggins leaving the Shire in The Lord of the Rings. Abram is putting it all on the line, stepping out in trust, and saying goodbye to everything he's ever known. But biblical scholar Klaus Westermann makes the case that this story really shouldn't be read so much as a test of faith, since the people of Abram's time were nomadic. That's to say, they were quite used to roaming around for various reasons, such as food supply, natural disasters, and threat of neighbors. After all, Abram was born in Ur, but was living in Haran by the time of this call, already showing he had packed up the U-Haul and moved once before. Nonetheless, there's nothing specifically included in the text to detail what caused Abram to move other than God's call. He obeys the call and does so silently, demonstrating a level of trust and obedience. The first reading ends poignantly with, Abram went as the Lord directed him. It sets the stage for the obedience he'll show throughout the following chapters of Genesis, and most famously, of course, obedience in being willing to sacrifice his only son. St. Paul is writing to Timothy once again in our second reading. As we said before, this second letter to Timothy is something like Grandpa sitting on the rocking chair and giving you some advice. Paul here is reflecting on his own life and offering it to young Timothy. Listen to the opening line of the passage. Bear your share of hardship for the gospel with the strength that comes from God. Clearly, Paul can back up this imperative from the witness of his own life, having borne much hardship himself in preaching the gospel. It's commonly believed that the remaining verses of the second reading were something like an ancient hymn that Paul included into the letter because of its language and song-like quality. Interestingly enough, this possible hymn may be an implicit diss towards Julius Caesar. You see, in the city of Ephesus in 48 AD, Julius Caesar was declared the God-made-manifest and common savior of human life during a city council. After this decree in 48 AD, Christians would have been quite familiar with this language, especially those St. Timothy would have been interacting with since he was the overseer, that is the bishop, of the church in Ephesus, the same city as the council. This gives all the more meaning to St. Paul's words when he says that God has been now made manifest through the appearance of our Savior, Christ Jesus. That same Savior, Christ Jesus, is being transfigured in our gospel passage. It's the third time we've explored an account of the transfiguration on this show, since the transfiguration always is the gospel for the second Sunday in Lent in all three years of the cycle. There's a bunch we could say about this story and some of which we've already said in those previous episodes. But what makes St. Matthew's account of the Transfiguration unique is that, true to form with his gospel as a whole, he really emphasizes allusions to Moses receiving the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. Check out all the similarities to the two stories. Just as with Moses, Jesus goes up on a mountain, he brings a group of three, Peter, James, and John, his body becomes radiant, a bright cloud appears, a voice speaks from that cloud, and those who are nearby are struck with fear. All of these details are in common with Moses' experience on Mount Sinai, but there are some ways that they differ, too. Moses was the recipient of revelation, while here Jesus is the revelation, and the disciples are the ones receiving it. 
In a similar manner, the revelation here in the Transfiguration isn't, strictly speaking, a law as it was on Mount Sinai. St. Matthew tells us that Moses and Elijah appeared to the disciples as they conversed with Jesus. Many, and I mean many, scholars will point out that this is because, in the Old Testament, Moses was seen as the central character of the law and Elijah the central character of the prophets. But according to tradition, both of these characters, Elijah and Moses, didn't experience a normal death but rather a sort of passage into heaven, with Elijah's much more famous fiery chariot ride coming to mind. Because of this, there were some eschatological traditions at the time of Jesus that these two figures would return at the beginning of the end of the age. It's kind of like how the fat lady starts to sing to signal the end of the opera. Lastly, we can't conclude without mentioning Peter's offer to build three tents. Some scholars believe it ties in with the Feast of Booths, known more literally as the Feast of Tents. But this doesn't seem likely, since if that feast was ongoing, why would Matthew tell a story about Jesus when he wasn't in Jerusalem for that feast? And furthermore, Matthew doesn't include any information in the story about what time of year it was. More likely, the three tens Peter offers to build here were meant as something like commemorative structures to mark the occasion. After all, we can see throughout the Old Testament that shrines were erected in places where God had been revealed. Peter likely wants to mark the spot of this awesome event by building three tent shrines. So that's it. That's your Sunday setup for this second Sunday in Lent in year A. May this knowledge of the story behind the scripture allow you to encounter Jesus Christ in a new way this weekend. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.